Over the past three years, it's been a great honor of mine to develop a friendship with Andrew Yang. I remember walking down a street in New York City a few years ago with Andrew talking about all the challenges we face as a society. He looked at me with undogged determination and said, if we want to solve the problem, we need to be a part of the solution. Since deciding to run for president, Andrew's raised the level of discourse in our country and really forced us as a citizenry to challenge many of our most basic assumptions. He's elevated a vision for a more humane capitalism and stressed the importance of country allegiance over party allegiance. Andrew had a sentiment he often used to express on the campaign trail. His vision and policies were not about moving the country left or right, rather they were about moving the country forward. Andrew joined me and 30 of Atlanta's most senior leaders for an intimate fireside chat to provide a perspective on how we move forward as a society. Since then, he's announced his candidacy for mayor of New York, and I'm thrilled to be an early and avid supporter. Enjoy the fireside chat. I can manage that. Hello, Atlanta. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, let's get the blood flowing. Go ahead, Ramin, kick us off. All right. Everybody can get seats too. We have enough, we have enough seats for everybody here in the back. All right, so thank you everybody for coming. Um, and thank you, Andrew, for taking the time. I got to know Andrew, I guess, three years ago. He was running an organization called Venture for America at the time. And one day, Andrew left VFA, and I, I sent him an email saying, hey, congrats, you know, what's next? And he said, I'm running for president, what do you think? And I said, okay, president of what? He said, I'm running for president on a platform of universal basic income, what do you think? I thought this guy is either half crazy or he's totally onto something. And I think we all saw that he was completely onto something. It was amazing. You know, we were walking down a street in New York a couple of years ago. It was two people working in a New York apartment with Andrew. Fast forward 24 months later, you know, he was a mainstay on the stage with our president-elect and our vice president-elect. So, Andrew, you know, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. He's going to give about 10 minutes of opening remarks. We're going to do about a 30-minute fireside chat back and forth. Um, and then we'll do some socially distant, you know, meet and greet. So, Andrew, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your friendship, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Romine, for bringing us together. It's a privilege. And Romine undersells himself. He was one of the people that supported me when it was a little bit zany to do so. So I'm very, very grateful. And the, the folks like him, for, how many of you all are entrepreneurs or run a business or started a business or a division or offered a product? You know it's the early adopters, the people that get behind you early that matter the most. After you become mainstream, it's easy to get behind you, uh, but it takes real character and vision to get behind someone uh, when they're out of the public eye. So thank you, Ramin. It was a very, very high character move and I'll never forget it. I appreciate it. I uh, appreciate you. So I'm not someone who aspired to be a politician and I can prove it to you in two ways. Number one, my lovely wife Evelyn is there and she can vouch for the fact that there were no political designs <laughs> in our family's future uh, pre 2017. And the second thing is I ran an organization called Venture for America that helped foster entrepreneurship and we had no operations in New Hampshire or Iowa. So clearly, if I'd had any designs, I would have been like, oh, like Iowa City, that'd be delightful. Uh, I'm like some of you, the ones who raise their hands about being an entrepreneur or a business owner. I ran an education company that became number one in the country and it was then bought by a public company. That was in 2009. Uh, and so at that point, I had a bit of a, an inflection point where I was trying to figure out, you know, when there's a fireside chat, ordinarily there's a fire. I feel very cheated. <laughs> there was a nice bonfire here. I'd be like, you know this, and like toast a marshmallow while I'm speaking. Uh, 
So I had an inflection point that some of you have experienced, which is that uh, you sell your business, you're working for some bigger company, and you're like, am I going to do this? What am I going to do next? So I got it into my head that I wanted to give back uh, and help foster entrepreneurship. Because if you look at the numbers, entrepreneurship has been declining for years, particularly among young people in this country, for a number of big structural reasons. And uh, Romine resembles this sort of in a positive way, it's fine, but Romine went to work at McKinsey. Uh, and what I saw when you looked at talented recent college graduates is that they were more likely to work for a big tech company, uh, an investment bank, a consulting firm, go to law school, maybe go to medicine or academia than they were to start a business. Uh, and I thought, well, how do you change that? So I started a nonprofit that recruited those self-same recent college graduates, paired them with entrepreneurs in cities like Detroit, Cleveland, Baltimore, New Orleans, Birmingham, uh, for two years. And then at the end of two years, if they wanted to start their own business, then we had a seed fund to help support them and a little accelerator. How does that idea sound to you all? Pretty good, right? Venture for America. Who could not be for Venture for America? You'd have to be kind of a jerk to not be for this, I thought. It's like, this is like the most American thing. So I donated six figures to start this organization, then marched around the country galvanizing support. Uh, it grew and grew to a point where now we've created several thousand jobs in 12 cities around the country, and I did that work for six years, full time. But during those six years, I saw communities in Michigan, Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, Missouri, that had been blasted by these waves of automation, where we'd eliminated 5 million manufacturing jobs in this country, went from 17 million to 12 million or so, and those communities have never truly recovered. Detroit, peak population 1.2 million, now is a population of around 650,000. How many of you have been to Detroit in the, over the last number of years? So you know what I'm talking about, the city is 40% deserted, and it's very difficult to manage an infrastructure that goes that negative. Uh, where you can have buildings that have immense value when they're filled with people and then have negative value as soon as they're neglected and unoccupied. So that happened in manufacturing, and then Donald Trump won in 2016. And I was surprised by that. How many of you all were surprised by that when Trump won? You know, if you were surprised, you are probably like me, where you looked at the analyses and the numbers, you consider yourself a numbers person, you're like, okay, polls say this, it seems like Hillary's gonna win, life goes on. Trump wins, and I thought, okay, this surprises me on a level that requires me to dig into the numbers. So that's when I saw that the things that I'd seen as CEO of Venture for America were happening in these communities, but that it was going to start applying to the most common jobs in the economy aside from manufacturing, which are retail, call centers, truck driving, food service and food preparation, a lot of these, and you work in some of these industries, like a lot of these jobs are getting consolidated very quickly too. Where Amazon is, was pre-COVID closing 30% of America's malls uh, and the retail workers were getting kicked to the curb, the average retail worker is a 39-year-old woman making 10 to $12 an hour. So what was her next move gonna be? And I have friends in tech, how many of you all work in technology or technology related? Yeah, so I have a bunch of friends who are in tech and one of the things they were investing hundreds of millions of dollars in was uh, autonomous vehicles. Because they were like, if we get this, we're gonna save hundreds of billions of dollars a year in freight costs, in Uber drivers, and on and on. 
On the other side of that equation, driving a truck is the most common job in 29 states. There are over 3 million truckers, 94% men, average age 49, average education, high school, or one year of college. A lot of them are ex-military. So if our friends in tech succeeded in making these autonomous vehicles, what does that mean for those 3 million men? We're in the third inning of the greatest economic transformation in the history of the country. And in my mind, the second or third inning brought us Donald Trump. And it was just going to get more and more extreme. And I looked up and I went to our political figures and I was like, who's going to do anything about this? Crickets, which surprises none of you because you know politicians. You know, you've hung out with them. Uh, and there's no political interest in making this case. Like, who, who's going to applaud for you if you decide to raise your hand and say, hey, FYI, we're going through the fourth industrial revolution. We're going to start shedding a lot of the most common jobs in the economy. The people that are most impacted will not have the resource to do so. So this was the thinking that drove me to do the irrational thing that Romine was talking about, which is run for president in 2017. And then the campaign grew and grew because I was talking sense. Uh, and the wild thing is that this movement has continued to grow even after I dropped out because now the things I was concerned about in the economy are coming true before our eyes. We're experiencing 10 years worth of economic change in 10 weeks or the equivalent. And if you run a company, you are investing more in automation right now because your customers want it, the numbers demand it, the tech is maturing. Some of you are, are actually enabling these companies to automate. And my argument to you all is that you should be able to do that because that is what your job is, really. Like, it's ridiculous to ask an innovator to somehow figure out all the downstream impacts of your work. It's hard enough making the innovation happen. So whose job is it to figure out the downstream impacts of technological advancement if it's not the innovators? It's our government. government. And that's a painful statement to make out loud because some of you are like, oh no, our government. But it is our government. It is the only actor that can realistically account for this magnitude of change. So that is the situation we're in. It's something like of an irresistible force, an immovable object coming together, which is that we need our government to get its act together, but our government is very, very far from that right now. Uh, so that's what drove me to the race, and that's what continues to motivate me today. Uh, we have a lot of work ahead of us, and we, and we don't have unlimited time. So I'm thrilled to be with you all today, excited to have this fireside chat with my friend Romine, and hopefully I can answer some questions and also get you motivated to put some of your considerable resources and intellectual capital to work. Thank you. So Andrew, I want to pick up from your remarks and start with a little bit of a deeper dive on universal basic income. Sure. So a lot of people have framed universal basic income, especially folks on the right have framed it as socialism. You framed it as capitalism with the floor. Let's just set the dialogue and set the stage by unpacking universal basic income, the genesis of it, um, and why that's you know the right policy. Sure thing. So I want you to flash back to the first time you heard of, of me. Uh, like what what was that first time? It was something like Asian man wants to give everyone money. Uh, something along those, was that right? Not like the first exposure. And then your first reaction was like, ha ha, like, you know, that's a gimmick, um, like that, that won't work. Uh, but this isn't an original idea, it's not my idea. It's been with the country since the country's founding. Thomas Paine was for it centuries ago. Martin Luther King 
championed it and is what he was fighting for when he was killed. Guaranteed income for all Americans. Milton Friedman was for it. It almost passed the Nixon administration. And then one state has had a dividend in place where now everyone in that state gets between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked. And what state is that? Alaska. And how does Alaska pay for it? Oil. And what is the oil of the 21st century? Data, technology, AI. So one of the deepest red states has been doing this for decades, and it's wildly popular. It's the favorite thing about the government for the people of Alaska. Uh, so what's, what starts out as sounding like a very extreme dramatic idea is actually deeply American. And one of the things that you all know as business owners and runners, businesses function a lot better when customers actually have money to spend. You know what I mean? Like right now, we're eviscerating the middle class of this country, and your markets are becoming these dumbbells, where it's you have these like these very very rich consumers and firms on one side, and then some very very poor ones, and then the the people in the middle are now disappearing. So by putting money into folks' hands, we elevate the people that are falling into the lower class and actually uh, keep them in the middle class, make it so that the economy functions better and our democracy functions better because you don't have more and more people who are sinking into despair and deprivation. Uh, so that's the, uh, the underpinning of universal basic income. And you're right, Romine, it's capitalism where income doesn't start at zero. And one of the principles that you've talked about frequently, and I think, I think actually is the underpinning of universal basic income, is this mindset of scarcity versus this mindset of abundance, right? So talk a little bit more, explain that concept a little bit more to folks here, and talk about why something like UBI you know, gives us more of an, uh, a mindset of abundance, and what are the implications of that? I love entrepreneurship in part because it's all about imagining what could be possible and then making it happen. There's like a real mindset of optimism and abundance that entrepreneurs have. Uh, the opposite of a mindset of abundance is a mindset of scarcity. And at least, I think most everyone here has had a mindset of scarcity at least at some point. Maybe not financial. It could be time. It could be companionship. It could be food, like one of those days where you just don't have any food and you, like your, your mind starts being like, like just starts thinking about kind bars instead of whatever the meeting is. Uh, so. If you can't pay your bills, it has a functional impact of decreasing your IQ by 13 points, or one standard deviation. Uh, and so most Americans are trapped in this time-money trade-off calculation all the time, where it's like, okay, if I take this extra time, I'll save $20. Uh, and, or if I don't repair my car right now, maybe I can stretch it out like a certain length. And they're like constantly making these calculations. And it's this bandwidth tax that is making people less rational, less optimistic, uh, less generous and less tolerant. If, if you have this feeling that America is becoming more susceptible to bad ideas and bad thinking and irrationality, we are because we have introduced pervasive financial insecurity throughout the country. Half of Americans couldn't afford an unexpected $400 bill pre-COVID. And now about 10 million of them have lost their jobs. So if you go to them and say, we need to worry about climate change, they look at you and are like, climate change, like that's the last thing I care about right now. I'm trying to keep food on the table. So you need a mindset of abundance in order to think that you can make the world better, you can solve big problems. And in this country, a mindset of abundance is losing. Scarcity is winning, and that's one reason why it seems like we can't come together and solve any meaningful problems anymore. So a lot of people agree that there's problems, right? But it doesn't seem like Washington can do anything about it. And if you look back historically, I mean, there's obviously always been 
multiple political parties, differences of opinion, but it feels like we're getting further and further apart as opposed to finding a way to work together. You've been in the bowels of politics now for the last, you know, national politics for the last 18 to 24 months. Wh what is going on? Why are we getting further and further apart? I'm reading a book, I'm just about done, uh, called Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein that came out this year. How many of you have seen this book or read it? It's very, very compelling uh, about how the fact that partisanship has increased dramatically for a number of structural reasons over the last number of decades. And, and so now Washington's dysfunction is higher than ever. Um, and I'm a systems guy, so I'm gonna explain it in a systems way I think a lot of you will appreciate. All right, congressional approval rating nationwide, what do you think it is? 30, 40, 20, it's 21%, very low, no one's happy, for good reason. People are like, Congress, terrible. What is the re-election rate for an incumbent who decides to run? 94%. So think about that. Four out of five of us are like, Congress not working, but if someone decides to run, 94% success rate. What, what kind of results do you think you're gonna get from that system? Maybe nothing, maybe the same. Uh, it turns out at this point, if you don't solve the problem, it might be good for you politically. Because if the problem exists, you can get people animated, you can fundraise off it, you can get people mad at the other side. Immigration is an example. If you had meaningful immigration reform, then one group or another could not point to immigration and say, hey, there's a massive problem, we need your money to fight the other guys. So we have a system, the, the conventional thinking is that the system is broken. But the, the tougher truth is that the system's actually working as it's intended. It's just not intended to solve our problems. Because the feedback mechanism between us and our elected leaders has broken down for a number of structural reasons. So that's a pretty dark diagnosis, you know? <laughs> Some of you are thinking, this is the worst politician I've ever seen. <laughs> no wonder he lost, oh, I'm kidding. Um, but the political system is not designed for our shared success anymore. And uh, the, the ambition we've had for quite some time is that if you can just get some more good people into that system, then the system would be cleansed or become more effective. Um, but that is probably not true. It's more likely, uh, as Ezra Klein said, that like the corruptive system will win before the good individual wins. Uh, so that's why it feels like things are getting worse for us, because they are, truly. Like the, the bipartisanship that we aspire to or hope for out of Congress has been dropping precipitously for a number of years, and there's no reason to think it's going to, to return. I'm going to tell a story from a member of Congress who, I mean, I have a lot of stories from members of Congress. But there's a rule right now where you can only bring a bill to the floor if a majority of the majority party is for it. So if you are a minority legislator, what can you do? Next to nothing. <laughs> you literally can't bring anything to the floor. A lot of the time, they don't even give you a chance to read the legislation when, when the bill's out there. It's like, here's the bill, you've got like this very limited time span, and they don't expect you to vote for it at all. So in that environment, how can you have bipartisanship? It would be impossible. And so you've said, you've said Donald Trump is the symptom, not the cause. Un unpack that a little bit more, because I think you're going on that same direction. 
to me, the fact that Donald Trump became our president, he's still our president as of this, this event. <laughs> yeah. uh, I took it as a giant red flag. Um, and, and the red flag has actually continued through 2020 despite the fact that Joe won and Trump lost. Uh, that you'd have to have a very mistrustful population that is open to someone coming in from outside and draining the swamp and trying to, to change the system uh, dramatically for someone like Trump to win. And then you see the Republican Party's norms corrode. And some of you all are, have been Republicans for a long time, and that's cool. There are a lot of business owners who naturally uh, fall in that camp, and I have many, many friends who resemble that. Um, but you have to face facts that the Republican Party uh, has not been standing up for its historic principles for a number of years now. I mean, the clearest sign is you look at their party platform, their 2016 convention. Does anyone know what that party platform said? They didn't even bother writing one. The, their party platform was literally whatever Trump says. It was like a three-word platform. They, they didn't want to write anything down because they were afraid Trump was going to say something <laughs> that went the other direction uh, 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 you know, the next day. So the Republican Party um, has not been functioning at a high level for a while. And the Democratic Party has its own struggles uh, and failings. So to me, Donald Trump is a manifestation of this larger institutional failure and the fact that many, many Americans do not think that our government is responsive, is not working for them. Uh, and so Trumpism will not end with Trump's departure from office, not even just because of Trump himself, but there are many other folks who saw what happened with Donald Trump and said, I can take something from that. Like, I can make myself wealthy from that. I can make myself powerful from, from that. There are going to be a lot of people who are following the Trump script, and it turns out the more dramatic and inflammatory they are, the more successful they're likely to be. Andrew, you mentioned that you know, there's also issues on the Democratic Party right now. Um, I think this election outside of the presidency was actually very unsuccessful for Democrats. Democrats were looking at picking up seats in the House. Um, the races in Iowa, Ohio weren't even remotely competitive. You've talked about you know, when, you've, when you were campaigning and you would travel the country, you would talk policies, people would ask you what party you were from, you would say Democratic and they'd kind of take a step back. What, what's going on on the opposite side of the aisle right now? Uh, the Democratic Party has become caricatured, but there is some truth in it, uh, as this party of cultural, educational elites uh, who aren't listening to folks in rural communities uh, about things that, that are distressing them. Uh, and so when I'd go to rural communities in Iowa and other places, there, there was like a negative reaction uh, to the Democratic Party, which made me sad because I, I thought I was there to try and help. Um, a lot of this is media polarization, where Fox's ratings, most of you know, like I, you know, I contributed, uh, contributed on uh, CNN, uh, like a significant amount. Maybe CNN's sort of a hometown company. Maybe you guys have like very warm and fuzzy feelings about CNN. Uh, Fox News has significantly higher ratings than CNN or MSNBC. Uh, you know, not quite twice as much, but maybe like 70% higher. So when you go to a lot of these communities, they're watching Fox and they're, they're getting like uh, something of a polarized view of the world. Um, but the Democratic Party has played into that in, in various ways. Uh, and it needs to do a better job of trying to communicate in terms that will actually speak to people rather than saying like, well, there's something wrong with you if you're not listening to the message. It's like, well, maybe, you know, your job is to reach people, so maybe you should 
uh, message differently? You've seen it, you've seen the government structurally from the inside now. Do you think a third party platform is even possible in this country? Or how do we, how do we bridge back, how does either party bridge back towards the center? Well, well th this is, so this is the structural stuff that uh, I was talking about, where you have this duopoly, you have a political system that rewards folks from competing, not necessarily solving problems, and then if you're an entrepreneur operator, you say, okay, like, let's change the duopoly. But then you get there and you find out that changing the duopoly is very, very difficult. But there is a key to breaking up the duopoly that I'd love for you to take with you after, as you leave here today. It's ranked choice voting. If you have ranked choice voting, then voters can vote for whomever they want and never be bullied about wasting your vote. Uh, it ends up making it so that candidates have to speak to a broader mass of people than just the party primary voters. Right now, about 20% of voters vote in the primary, so you're looking at appealing to that group. And by the time it gets to the general election, it's not a real contest anymore. So if you have open primaries and ranked choice voting, then our politics would become significantly more dynamic and you could see a genuine third party rise up. So if you're, and, and the great thing about arguing for ranked choice voting is you're essentially just arguing for better democracy. Uh, and so there is really no principled argument against ranked choice voting unless you're a hyper-partisan and you think it's gonna be bad for your party not to control the process anymore. There was a famous boss, uh, Boss Tweed in New York politics who said a long time ago, you can elect whoever you want as long as I get to do the nominating. That is the system we have today because by the time it gets to the general population, and this is like, how many of you have had this feeling where you're like, wait, I'm choosing between these two people? How many of you have had that feeling? Yeah, yeah. so we can change that if you have ranked choice voting in open primaries because you could have uh, the, the, you could have, let's say, four or five candidates who represent different points of view, and then you can rank them. Uh, and it rewards trying to reach a consensus. It punishes negative campaigning, because if you trash someone, then you both suffer, and then the third person ends up rising up. So if you're interested in a more dynamic, functional democracy, you should be for ranked choice voting. And you should make it happen here in Georgia. I bet this group to get to here, right here today. This is a very influential group. If you all decided to make ranked choice voting happen in Georgia, I bet it would happen by 2022. So you're down here campaigning for Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff. What are the implications of, you know, if Republicans win, win the Senate? And I ask it from the perspective of, you know, we've talked about this before, that typically from a data-driven perspective, bipartisan government does come to better outcomes. But I think there's a conceptual way to think about that question, and then there's a pragmatic way to think about it with the players on the ground, right? So what are the stakes in this election? Um, why are you so confident that a one-party system in this you know, session of Congress, upcoming presidency, is better than bipartisan government? Well, you hit the nail on the head. Because if you were to ask me or a lot of Americans and say, what would your preference be? They would say bipartisanship compromise, like uh, effective government. What do we have in real life? We have two parties that can't pass a, a relief bill during an historic pandemic uh, you know, for eight months in a row. Uh, you have them presenting alternate visions of legislation and then not being able to meet in the middle. So if you're a business owner, an operator, or a runner, like I have been, you know that the last thing you want in a crisis is 
nothing or inaction. There was an economist who said it like this, bills that pass have higher impact than bills that don't. And right now our system is designed for bills that don't pass. And bipartisanship, like you said, Romine, it's a beautiful abstraction and I am for it. But in real life, if you have these players, it's inaction. So I want you to present uh, instead this vision where you have 50-50 Senate. That's not exactly a dramatic majority. You're still gonna need to get every single person on board, including folks like Joe Manchin, who represents West Virginia, and is a very, very centrist figure. You have a bunch of centrist folks. So if you're here in Georgia, I'm sure you're getting tired of the political ads. Uh, I'm going to, to express a political ad for you. I've been, I've been working on it. Let's see if I can do this. Radical socialist, John Ossoff, here to destroy America. Vote for David Perdue to save America. I mean, really, like that, that's what's being presented. What's the reality? A 50-50, evenly divided Senate, where you're, like, that's actually the path to bipartisanship. If you have 50-50, then you're going to have to drag everyone along and say, look, we're gonna pass a bill, but you also have a much greater chance of things actually getting out of, uh, out of Congress. Whereas if you have Mitch McConnell on one side and Nancy Pelosi on the other, nothing gets done. You know, so to me, that's a very, very easy choice, particularly when you're looking at trillion, multi-trillion dollar hole in the economy, 10 million jobs underwater. If you're business owners, you know, our labor market's not gonna repair itself for years. Even if I magically vaccinated everyone in the country today, it would take multiple years for this labor market to knit itself back together. Because if you separate folks in the workforce for months on end, like, uh, you know, that there's a lot of distance to make up. So that's why I'm convinced we should be supporting John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock. Uh, to me, it's a move for a functioning government. Like you have a choice between a functioning government and a non-functioning government during a crisis. That's a very easy call. One of the things, Andrew, I've always admired by you is, and you told me this early on is, and you alluded to it earlier today, you didn't run for you know, any of the fanfare, you didn't grow up wanting to be president, um, but you saw a hole being ripped out of the ground in our economy. What, when you look at government, what are the biggest areas of opportunity of improvement, not from a structural perspective, we've, we've talked a little bit about that, but kind of specific areas that you would improve you know, if you were in government? You know, I'm going to put it in, in terms that you all would recognize. Uh, so if you run a business, imagine if you were running a business and you had the wrong measurements in place. How would that business fare over time? Terribly, right? Like, I know if you're an operator like I have been, you love your measurements. <laughs> you look at them all the time. Like, if your KPIs are going in the right direction, then everything tends to work out all right. So what are the KPIs we're using right now for the American economy? Stock market prices, headline unemployment rates, and uh, GDP. Now, each of these is misleading, but the stock market's the, the most misleading, despite the fact that I know like everyone here, uh, I think, is participating. Uh, the top 8% own something like 92% of, of stock market wealth. The bottom 48% own nothing. So if you're following stock market prices, you're leaving out the bottom, certainly 50% uh, of America, but probably closer to 60 or 70%. So imagine if you had a measurement for your company and it was obscuring what was going on with like you know 50 to 60% of your business. Like that's a that's a bad measurement. Uh, GDP is similar. GDP is going to skyrocket when AI comes online. Google 
just announced that they can do the work of call center workers with AI. Now, if you run a business, you're like, yes, that's going to be a huge win for me. But what about the two million plus Americans who work at call centers right now making 12 bucks an hour? I mean, that's kind of a major loss for them. How is it going to look for GDP when AI can do that job? Great, <laughs> because you just got it done better and more efficiently than ever. But that, that's going to make the bottom fall out for these millions of households. And headline unemployment obscures a lot of the weakness in the labor market, a lot of the gig employment, a, a lot of the underemployment. Um, so one big change that we should be making in our government is to have better measurements for how we're doing and then stick to those measurements and have what I call fact-based governance, which sounds elementary, but unfortunately we've kind of left that behind. Uh, and we're entering a world where people are just arguing alternate versions of reality. And if we, we do that, then we're, we're lost. Uh, so to me, if you have measurements that you can agree on that people can get behind, then that would be a huge step forward for our government, both locally and nationally. So let's, let's talk about metrics, right? What are the metrics that you would, you know, you talked about when you were in for president that, and I love this idea, you'd give a State of the Union, you'd put up a deck, you'd show a metric scorecard, and you'd talk to the American people on the basis of fact-based governance. What are the metrics that you would look at? I, I think I touched on a, a few of them. So America right now is 28th uh, in a combined uh, matrix of social indicators. Things like quality of public education, life expectancy, clean air and clean water, uh, mental health, deaths of despair and drug addiction. I would suggest to you all that 28th is not that good. Uh, you know, it's not like there are like a million countries and we're like <laughs> 28 out of a million. Like, I mean, if, if you try to list the 27 countries ahead of us, you're like, wait a minute, like you're, you're getting into some countries that you, know, you don't want to be below on a list. Uh, so those are some of the measurements that, that I would have used uh, for our national health. Our life expectancy as a country has declined three of the last four years. I would suggest that's a pretty basic measurement of how you're doing. Like if your people start dying earlier and you're literally trumpeting stock market prices, you're missing something very, very fundamental. So I would start with health, life expectancy, clean air, clean water, educational outcomes, mental health, and go from there. How do you leverage the business community and work with the business community better in government to drive more impact? A lot of folks, you know, some folks here, candidly, you know, get concerned about the pragmatism of a one-party system, um, and not, you know, not just out of hey, my taxes are going to go higher, but out of a lot of the so, uh, a lot of the, you know, more extreme rhetoric that's come from the progressive side of the party. Um, how do you think about working with government, uh, working with business more effectively in government? If I'm an operator, you know, there's a lot of frustration because when you interface with government, I'll tell you how it goes because I've been here too. What happens is they, they want to hang out with you. You're really cool. Uh, they want to get you to sign on to stuff. Um, they want you to put your name on things and then they put you on some kind of honorary commission and then you're on the honorary commission and you're like, what are we doing? Um, not a whole lot, as it turns out. But your name's on a list somewhere. You got a picture. There's like a donation involved in the rest of it. How many of you guys have been through some, something that resembles this? <laughs> At least a few of you. <laughs> I mean, th th this is what passes for it right now, that our, our government has devolved into like a battle of optics and, and like, you know, who's associated with, with what, as opposed to getting into the guts of a lot of these problems and trying to make them better, trying to get into the guts of these bureaucracies 
and making them better. Uh, I'm going to present something that you know, pained me greatly. So we sent out $1,200 checks to tens of millions of Americans in April, which I was thrilled about. Uh, and you know, to the extent my campaign had something to do with that, I'd, I'd be like incredibly proud. Um, but the way we did it was based upon the systems that we had in place at that time. Uh, so we plowed it through the IRS, said, hey, you got a tax return, then we'll try and get you the money. And we went through unemployment insurance offices at the state level. Now the problems there were that people, when they wanted the money, they had to call these unemployment uh, insurance offices in their states and they were on hold for hours and hours. They, some of them couldn't get the money, they didn't know how to do it. Frustration built. When I talked to members of Congress, they were inundated with calls from constituents saying, how do I get my money, how do I get my money? Now let's say this was you, as an operator. Could you have found a better way to get those people that money? I was in this position as uh, like in, in the spring where we had at that point three million, now 10 million, and we were trying to give it away to people. So the first thing I did is I called Chase and Citibank and I said, hey, can you identify a thousand poor struggling customers that we can just send a thousand dollars into their bank account? Uh, what do you think that Chase and Citibank said? No, can't do it. I then asked, can you give us a thousand, thousand dollar debit cards that we can then somehow get into the hands of people who are struggling. Also could not do that. Eventually we found a community organization that had the bank accounts of a thousand struggling families in the Bronx and then we got the money to them through this org. But we didn't want to stop there because we'd given out a million. So then we were looking at giving out another nine million or so. So we ended up doing what you would have done if you were in the situation either as an entrepreneur or a business owner. We went through PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, we built an online portal, and then we got $9 million out the door to something like uh, 30,000 families. How could a brand new nonprofit that had been in existence for a couple of months succeed at something our federal government seemed to just not even want to touch? Like our federal government just plowed it through these old pipes because that's the way they operate. The government of Togo distributed money digitally to a million folks in their country. And I'm gonna suggest again, Togo like is not exactly the, the, the country that you wanna like compare yourself to in the United States of America. So when you ask like what can business owners do for government, we need you to actually solve some of these problems at a commercial level that right now our government won't even attempt because they don't want to take responsibility for it. They're afraid it's not going to go well. And politicians' incentives revolve around just avoiding looking bad. And so they'd rather just cram it through the old pipes, even knowing that's going to fail millions of families, than enlist industry to do it better. And that is heartbreaking. You know, like it breaks my heart that. Industry did not come together to say, what's that? You're giving out billions of dollars? Let's help you do that right. We're in that situation right now. As we're meeting today, they're looking at sending out another 900 billion in various ways, a lot of it through the pipes again. What have we done between April and December to improve distribution? In terms of customer facing, I can't find a thing. You know, and I've talked to members of Congress like, so this is the government that we have right now in 2020. And if you're a business owner and operator, like you're like, what is going on over there? They like, they, it feels like they're in this era and I'm operating over here. We need you to help government catch up. 
If you can help government do that, then you will have done a great service for all of us. One of the fundamental things, Andrew, I think, to even be able to have this conversation is to be to have the same set of facts, right? And you've talked a lot about how um, we're, we're facing an information crisis. I mean, misinformation spreads six times faster than truthful information. The business models of social media companies are incented and built around misinformation spreading faster. A lot of these ideas from an outside-in perspective to me feel like we can't even begin to have the discourse or the conversation if we don't fix having the same set of facts. So from your perspective, how do we bring integrity and truth and fact-based you know, matter back into the conversation? I think it would start with the government having uh, a set of facts and then media organizations amplifying those facts. I think tech companies and social media platforms should get involved too. And nonprofits, we need a consortium around authenticity uh, and factualness because it's going to get much, much worse when deep fakes start hitting the internet and then you could have some video of Andrew Yang doing whatever and it's like very convincing. Uh, you know, it's like, it, it's going to be very, very easily weaponized. Um, one thing at a technical level, you might all appreciate this, is we should have watermarks where you can actually ascertain the device that a video came from, and the, the manufacturers actually have the capacity to do this. We just need to invest in it. Um, but those are the four parties that need to come together, government, media organizations, nonprofits, and tech companies. And I talked to some of those folks, and they know this is a massive problem. Uh, this is something that, if I were your president, I would be leading. As your as not your president, like I'll still do what I can, uh, but like but but having a, a set of facts that uh, that govern is mission critical at this point because we're losing it. Andrew, final question, and then we're you know folks are going to come up and kind of meet with you a little bit. What was your biggest takeaway from running for president? My biggest takeaway is, is were the stories I heard on the trail, and people are struggling. Uh, you know, like I, I was in a small town, and the doctor came to me, and he said, "Around here, if you lose your, uh, if you lose, if you get sick, you lose your job because you can't work anymore. And if you lost your job, then you also lost your insurance. And then by the time we try and figure out what your new coverage is, you die. And so he said, like, so the health coverage around here is essentially." you die. Uh, and and I, I heard this story and I was like, this is the United States of America and this family doctor and I was telling me that like this, this is the system. Uh, there's just a, there's a lot of pointless suffering in this country, so much. Uh, and that was my, my takeaway uh, from my years on the trail where I'd show up and if you talk to folks, th this is another takeaway I'm going to suggest to you all uh, that, that's from Ezra Klein's book. There's only a 0.25 correlation between self-identified conservatism and liberalism and actual policy viewpoints. So if, if you hear someone say, like, I'm an arch-conservative, and then you say, hey, think drug prices are too high? They'll be like, oh, yeah, they're too high. You know, like, like if you actually start breaking things down on a granular level, there's a lot more agreement than disagreement. It's just right now we're having wars of, wars of abstraction and words that are being used to pit us against each other because the media companies profit that way, the political parties profit that way, um, but we all lose. So that's what I learned, is that if you actually sit down with an American family, you'll get along. They're great. You know, they agree on uh, much more than we disagree with. That, now that was the most politician-y thing I've said all night. It's like, we agree on much more than we disagree with. But <laughs> so I, I almost felt self-conscious saying it. But if, but if you sit down with 98% with of Americans, they're perfectly reasonable and they want the same things.
Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you, Ramin. Thank you, Atlanta. Appreciate the heck out of you.